And I want to jump right in, and we will be in 2 Kings chapter 6. So we'll be in the Old Testament. You may need to use the table of contents. And if you don't have a Bible with you, if you don't have a, a wireless device or something that will get you access to the Bible, um, would you just raise your hand? And my friend Mark will come around, and actually, he's got Bibles on him. And so if you don't have a Bible on you, please just raise your hand, and he'll give you one. Uh, that's a protective measure so that you know exactly what we're talking about and that I'm not making it up as I go. And, uh, and for you to follow along. And, and in addition to that, if you don't own a Bible, you don't possess one, please take that as, as our gift to you. Um, please take that as something. We, we want you to have that. We, we want everyone we know uh, to have access to God's Word. So we've been walking through the book of Acts and kind of put that on hold for a few weeks. And starting last week, we began a series, we'll call it Core Values, um, really who we are as a church and why we believe what we believe and what are the, the distinct things that we, we want to portray and we want to live out, we want to talk about, sing about. And last week we saw the, the key core value really is the story, the essential message of the Bible, and we call it the gospel. The gospel, it's, it's a real churchy Bible word, but it simply means good news. And we believe that what God has done for us in Jesus, what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ by sending Him to live and live a perfect life among us and die on our behalf and not stay dead on our behalf is really good news for us. And that is the essential message. We, we never outgrow that. We never graduate from that. We never get to a place where we need that less. And we never stop being hungry and thirsty for it. And, and when God shares that good news of what Jesus has done for us, it transforms our heart and we're not the same again. Uh, the, the way we see and think and feel and believe all become new. We have a new life in Him in the same way that Jesus, who was once dead, came to new life. We also once had one life, and now because of this good news of Jesus, we have a new life. And that's everything we believe. That, I mean, that is the core belief. That, that is it. If, every, if, if I stand up here and talk about some stuff, and I don't get back to that, then all I've done is wasted your time with good advice, when in fact there's life-changing good news to be shared. And for those of us who maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're welcome here. This is this is a safe place for you to be, okay? We, we, we're these crazy Jesus people, but if you, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're safe here, and, and we don't want to just give you good advice that might help you for the next couple of days. We want to give you good news that might transform your eternity. We really believe that this good news has changed everything, and so we can't stop talking about it. And this good news is, is an essential Believers, it's the message of the Bible. In fact, it's a story that keeps being played over and over again in the Bible. And, and we want to see that here in Second Kings because the gospel is something that's deeper and more powerful because what God has done in Jesus and the good news of Jesus is bigger and greater than all things. Then to share it amongst us is to have something in common that's greater than all things. The gospel begins to cultivate our relationships based on this amazing news rather than just our preferences. And so the people in this room have very little in common in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, you're here in the same place right now, and because you're not talking to one another, you're kind of in agreement. But if you put that to rest for a little while and begin to talk about what you think and believe and, and think is right, you start to realize we're, we're miles apart from one another. Well, guess what? When we have the good news of Jesus in common, we have so much more in common than any other thing. When Jesus has saved us, redeemed us, adopted us, and called us in to be his own possession, we have more in common with one another than any other thing we might think we have in common. Because what God has done is so great and so big, then there is nothing greater than we can have in common than the good news of Jesus. So I can compliment you and say all the good things I want to about you. 
I can make much of you and, and make you feel important. But there is nothing that I can do, say, or accomplish greater than what God has done and said about you for you. The compliments that God piles on us as adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ is a greater compliment and praise than I can give you. And so therefore, there's a greater friendship that you and I share because of Jesus than we could share because of, I don't know, football teams. There's a greater There's a greater friendship and companionship and fellowship, as the Bible calls it, that you and I have now because of Jesus than any other thing that we might hold in common. And so there's an amazing sense of identity we have because of Jesus. And we want to center everything we believe and talk about in that Jesus. And that good news is the story of the Bible. That's a good news that that actually speaks out against the the words that the culture seems to to want to pound in your head. And and, in a culture that says you should satisfy yourself, you should should be a self-satisfying individual, you should be a self-actualizing individual, instead the gospel says that we ought to be self-sacrificing. We ought to be self-denying, not self-gratifying. Why? Because what Jesus has done and given to us is greater than anything the world might offer to satisfy you. And when Jesus satisfies us with what he's done for us, man, it's easy to lay down and make sacrifices and express generosity because he's been so generous to us. It's more than good advice. Some people want to kind of summarize what the church is. Um, They take Jesus' words out of context, and they're good words, but they say the essential message of of the church is to simply love God and love others. Have you ever heard that? Well, that's not the good news. That's a summary of the law. That's Jesus' quick summary of God's commands for you and me. But here's the cool thing. You've broken that command. You've broken the command to love God, and you and I have broken the command multiple times to love others like we ought to. Here's the good news that's better than a summary of the law. Our Jesus is the only one who loved God perfectly, and he loved others so much that he died in their place. And so don't get that confused. Good advice and good commands are good, but they're not the good news that saves us. And because it saves us, because it gives us new life, there's new power in a new culture. And the culture that the world sells you is different than the culture that the gospel creates. And that new culture that the gospel creates is what we call the church. It's the church. The new culture that the gospel creates among us is the church. It's it's the language we speak. It's the thing that we believe. It's the sense of identity. It's the narrative into which we fit. This good news is not just one thing among other things that we ought to fit into our lives, right? Have you heard someone that you need to fit Jesus in your life? You need to make Jesus a priority? That's backward. That's completely out of whack, The gospel is the story of what God is doing in all creation, redeeming people to himself. That's not a story we fit into our story. Instead, that is the story into which our story begins to fit into. It's the story into which our lives begin to belong and find meaning. God would invite you and me, lowly you and me, into what he's been doing from the beginning is incredibly good news. And because that's incredibly good news, there's something we do with it. And we'll call it the mission. So our first key value is the gospel. But right after that, because of the good news, we have a mission. And the mission is the message. The mission is the gospel. We are the messengers of this good news. We're like the waiter. Jesus is like this five-star chef, right? 
And he's just serving up good things to people. Every good and perfect gift comes down from him to you and to me. And you and I have been offered the opportunity to be the messengers. We're the waiters, the waitresses. And this is really good because we don't have to save the world. All we have to do is tell the message of the guy who did. And so we have a message, and that message is our mission. And I want to show you how this mission and this message is something that takes place over and over again throughout the entire Bible. And we'll begin looking at it in 2 Kings chapter 6. So God's people are split up because of their disobedience and they find themselves, this, this, this country of people, this, these Israelites, these people of Israel, and they find themselves huddled up in this place called Samaria, which is their capital city. So it's as if they're under siege and they're hiding in Washington, D.C. for us. And so beginning in verse 24 of 2 Kings chapter 6. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, or Aram, depending on your translation, mustered or gathered his entire army and he went up and he besieged Samaria, that is the capital city of Israel. And so right off the bat, there's a terrible set of circumstances. The context which is being laid here is awful. Imagine, I mean, pick your poison. Um, I don't, I'm not a fear monger, so I really don't want to pick one and give it to you, right? Um, but imagine some outside occupying power coming in and taking over the United States and besieging it surrounding us on all fronts. There's armies at the south and the north, and there's, there's a navy on each coast, and we're stuck where we are. And we are besieged, and we're huddling up in the capital city, and they're, they're circled around us. The enemy is just hiding outside the city, waiting for us to come out, holding us hostage. Things are bad, but they get worse. In verse 25, it says, also, there was a great famine in Samaria. And as they besieged it, They besieged it, excuse me, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter cab of dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. So as if things couldn't get any worse, they were under siege by their enemies and they knew that if they walked outside, the enemy would kill them. But in addition to that, so they couldn't get resources or or things that they needed in or out of the city because they were under siege. But in addition to that, there was a famine going inside the city. And so on one hand, stuck where they were because the enemy held them hostage there but on the other hand they didn't even have what they needed because they were in the middle of a famine inside their city so they couldn't go out to get resources they couldn't find resources there and so much so it got so bad and you probably knew exactly what this meant it says things were so bad that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter cab of dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver okay now that's going to need a little bit of translation and explanation right but it's pretty easy and here's the way I would say it. So right now, we're getting pretty close to lunchtime, um, although I say that almost all day, every day. We're getting pretty close to lunchtime, and maybe your stomach's starting to growl. Maybe you skipped breakfast. Maybe breakfast was a long time ago. And when I say the word donkey's head, do any of you begin to salivate? Like donkey's head. Oh, dude. Like when we're done, we're done here, we break up, we dismiss, let's go somewhere. Let's get some donkey's head right? I mean, Applebee's, donkey's head, just go together, right? And I say donkey's head. Does anyone's stomach start to growl, right? So, so even for you, the idea of a donkey's head, the head of a donkey, I mean, even think of something you would actually would eat because we don't eat donkey, but let's say a cow's head, right? Even then, that's kind of a strange thing to eat. And it doesn't make you, I don't know, it doesn't make you hungry. It doesn't make you salivate. And yet, apparently, this thing that's disgusting that you couldn't give away, right? Because if you had a donkey and you were going to eat it, you'd probably chop the head off, throw it away, and eat some better parts of its body. 
And yet, in this particular setting, things are so bad that the stuff you would rather throw away is going for a fortune. It's going for top dollar. A donkey's head, something you would never eat, is now being sold inside this city, and it's so bad that it's being sold for the same price as a delicacy would be sold. In addition to that, it says that a quarter cab of dove's dung is also sold for five shekels of silver. So you know this, you're South Dakota, right? Um, Our Native American friends um, used to cook with something we find readily available across um, the plains, especially uh, some time ago, and that is buffalo chips, right? When they dry up, you can burn them and cook with them, okay? And so buffalo chips, um, they're not very valuable, right? They have no value. In fact, if you're lucky, maybe they use as fertilizer, but they have no value. And the same thing is here. that They used a, a, a way to use this dove's dung to cook with. It was basically like charcoal, but it was really cheap and not valuable. Less valuable, certainly, than wood or anything else you could cook with. And this thing that normally you could go out and find and has value is now worth five shekels of silver. Things are so bad that the things that used to be free, the things that you would throw away are going for a fortune. That's how desperate people are. But then it gets worse. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, verse 26, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And you've got to love the sarcasm of this king here. He says, even if, he says, if the Lord will not help you, how am I supposed to help you? From the threshing floor? Or from the wine press? So get his sarcasm here. He's like, how am I supposed to help you? you? They're in the middle of a drought. They're in the middle of a famine. They don't have anything. And the donkey's heads are worth a fortune. And so he's like, how am I supposed to help you? You want me to get you some wheat from the threshing floor? Get you some flour for some bread? No, you can't do that. Or maybe I'll help you from the wine press. You can kind of hear his sarcasm, like, how am I supposed to help you? We're in the middle of a famine. What are you talking to me for? Verse 28, it says, the king asked her, what's your trouble? And she answered, this woman here said to me, give your son that we may eat him today, and then we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give us your son that we may eat him. But she's now hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And as he was passing by on the wall, the people looked. Behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. So as if things couldn't get any worse, we're in a place now where these two people thought the only way out was to take their babies, boil them, and eat them. Now, even in your mind and, and mine, that, that's, that's kind of foreign to us. Our instincts are opposite of that. If we're in danger, if we're in need, our instincts, parents' instincts, and people who even aren't parents, have the instinct to like, well, I will sacrifice myself for my children. Right? I, I, I don't want anything to happen to my children. In fact, I would die for them. And that's kind of a natural instinct for parents. It's even a pseudo-natural instinct for people who see the helplessness of babies and children. And yet things are so bad. Things are so bad that these people thought the only way out was to sacrifice their own children to survive. And the king puts on the clothing of mourning, preparing for death. Verse 31, he said, May God do so to me, and even more also, if the head of Elisha, that's God's prophet, 
if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. The king is so angry, and he's so angry, and we'll see in a minute, he's so angry at the Lord, at God, that his only resort is, the only thing he can resort to is to attack God's spokesman. So Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer that is the king has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. For is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, speaking for the king, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? I want to stop there for just a minute and begin to kind of reflect on that. The king witnessed such a horrible sequence of events. The king found them to be in such a terrible state that his only response was to say that this evil, this trouble is from the Lord. And why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Why should I wait for God? What can God do? Have you ever been there? You ever been there? You ever been in that place where you're like, why, do I, why should I even believe that God is good? Why should I believe that God is in charge? Why should I believe that God has a plan for me? Why should I believe that God can get me out of this mess? It's so bad that even God could not get me out of this. In fact, have you ever been in a place where you said, you know what, I think God's the one who's punishing me right now? Ever been there? In fact, you may be there right now. I ask that because if you don't begin to take that question seriously, then the rest of this story makes no sense. And all I would say to you is you've never been there. If you've never been in that place where you're like, there can't possibly be a God, look around me. How could there be a God in spite of all of this? How could there be a God if this kind of stuff is happening in my life? If you haven't been there, then I would warn you that time's coming. This question's real, and this question, if you don't sympathize with it, is a real place that we find ourselves on a regular basis. Like, why should I even believe there is a God? It's a question kind of like when I used to ride motorcycles, I met an old guy, and, and he said there's two types of motorcycle riders. There's the guys that have been in a wreck, and there's the guys that haven't been in a wreck yet. And those are the two types of motorcycles, motorcycle riders. The guys that have been in a wreck, or they're just about to be in a wreck. And that's it. And there's a sense in which this commercial, is, excuse me, this, this question is, is the same way. It's, it's kind of the same, same perspective here that, that if you haven't asked this question, if you haven't been in that place where you're like, what is God doing and why should I believe that he's real? And I, I want to tell you, this, this question will probably come from your lips sometime soon. This is how we feel sometimes. But I want to share with you the good news. That in spite of that, even, even when we can't see it, God begins to do something. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, But Elisha said to the messenger, Hear the word of the Lord, for thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour shall be sold for a single shekel. 
and two measures of barley for a single shekel inside the gate of Samaria. And then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, even if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, that quite literally open up the floodgates of heaven, that's what we sing, open up the open up the heavens, even if the Lord should make windows in heaven, open the floodgates of heaven, could this thing even be? And Elisha said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So Elisha shares this good news. God is going to do something. As bad as it seems, as much as you want to give up on God, God is going to do something, and it's going to turn everything around. And even though right now you can't even afford to buy a donkey's head, which you wouldn't want, right now, 24 hours from now, God's going to do something so that the luxuries, the things in life you can't afford, all of a sudden are going to be given away for pennies. Right now you can't see it, but God is going to do something and it's going to change everything. Now stop. This is where the, the hero enters the story, right? This is where like Neo enters the matrix, okay? This is where, I don't know, Luke Skywalker, you know, dun, 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 you know, things are as bad as they could be. And then scene two, Luke Skywalker, our hero, enters, right? Uh, this is where, you know, Superman enters. What, whatever hero you can picture, you know, this is, things can't get any worse. And then it's like, stop, cut, go to the next scene, and our hero enters. God's going to do something, right? He's going to send a hero. God's going to send a savior. God's going to send someone to make things different. He's going to do something. And in verse three, we meet our heroes. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Now, lepers in this particular society were outcasts. They had no value. They were put outside to die on their own. And the only help that they were given were other lepers. And the only help that any person who was cast out of the society um, had was from the other people who were also cast out from the society. And there were colonies of lepers. And, and these four men who were lepers, they had leprosy, a disease of the skin that was highly contagious and there was no cure for it. And these men were sitting outside the entrance of the gate. And listen to our wonderful heroes and what they say. It says, they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? For if we say, let us enter the city, well, the famine is in the city and we will die there. But if we sit here, we will also die. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians, the enemy. And I love this. This is good logic right here. This is brilliant. For if they spare us, if they spare our lives, we shall live. And I love this. And if they kill us, we shall die. So here's our heroes. And the only redeeming quality that they seem to have is that they sense that they have nothing to lose. They are completely at the end of their rope. Our heroes enter, and this is the scene where we get to know who they are, and it come, we come to find out that they don't even, they don't have a plan of attack. They only have a plan of surrender. And their only choice now is not what they can do to fight back against the enemy or find food in the midst of the famine. Their only choice that they have left is how they die. Like, we're going to die. Let's at least pick where, right? Because if we stay here, we're going to slowly starve to death because there's a famine here. But if we go to the enemy, they'll either feed us, take pity on us, or they'll kill us really quick. I mean, they're not going to torture lepers. They're going to be afraid of us, right? And so the only redeeming quality for the heroes of this story is that they believe that they have nothing to lose. 
They believe that they have nothing that they can contribute to save themselves. The only thing they seem to bring to the table is that they're honest that they cannot save themselves. And their only option is how they die. So here come these four men. Pretty much sure that they're going to die, and now they know they go to the enemy. I love that. Don't, don't you love that? If they kill us, we die. Well, you're right. Verse 5, so they arose at twilight. Now stop for a minute. As we read through the Bible together, I want you to just take note of this phrase. This shows up a lot, and it says they arose early. It starts in Genesis when God does really cool things like with a guy by the name of Abraham and his son Isaac, and they go up on the mountain to sacrifice, and God sends his sacrifice to save Isaac, Abraham's son, and at the very beginning of the story, it says they arose early. They got up early. It shows up over and over and over again, and they're simply key words that are meant to grab your attention that God is about to do something. In fact, if you skip all the way to the end of this story, three days after our friend Jesus was hung on a cross and he died, betrayed and abandoned by his friends, there's some women, and it says they got up early on the first day of the week. Whenever you see these, just perk up your ears. God's about to do something. So it says that in verse 5, they arose at twilight, they got up early, and they went to the camp of the Syrians. But listen to what had happened overnight. And when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. And so they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, abandoned their horses, abandoned their donkeys, leaving the entire camp just as it was, and they fled for their lives. You see, God did something in the middle of the night, and it changed everything. Picture that if you will. Like, okay, so, so in our minds, we kind of have a plan of, of escape. I don't know. Um, like if something bad happened, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to like grab a few things and throw them in the car and drive or, and, or at the most, maybe like go into the basement and hide. So picture this. What would have to happen for you to think that the best option is to leave your house in the middle of the night and run directly away into a cornfield? Like, what would have to happen? What, how afraid would you have to be for you to just, in the middle of the night, get up and start running out of the city into the wilderness? Just running straight through the cornfield. Can you picture that? Like, what, what would have to happen? I mean, even the zombie apocalypse, I'm going to grab a gun, right? It says that they didn't even grab their weapons. They dropped their weapons and they just ran. Right? Even in the zombie apocalypse, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in a car. I'm, I mean, you know, I've seen the movies, right? There's, there's, if something bad happens, you know, I've seen the day after tomorrow. If, the, if it gets cold, I'm going to grab something. I'm going to grab my coat. It says that something happened so amazing and so terrifying. And their defeat was so ultimate that they just ran for their lives into the wilderness. Believing that they were better off with nothing and running fast than they were had they stayed exactly where they were. Can you imagine what it would take, what kind of fear you would have to be gripped with to think that the best option is to just start running into the cornfield? That's what God did to the enemy. It says in verse 8, when the lepers came to the edge of the camp and went into the tent, and then they ate 
And then they drank. And then it says they carried off silver and gold and clothing. See, they even left the clothing. What? Guys are crazy. They left clothing and, and then they went and they hid them. And then they came back and they entered another tent and then they carried off the things from it and they went and hid them. I love the picture here of, of these guys. They, they're pretty sure that the only possible outcome is that maybe they'll get lucky and the enemy will have mercy on them, right? Kind of like if you can't beat them, join them. And if they're lucky, they'll have mercy. But, but other than that, maybe they show mercy by just killing us immediately. And instead of walking into the camp and being met at gunpoint and met with weapons and threats, they're met with silence. And instead of being at risk, instead of their lives being in danger, they walk into an open party. It says they begin eating and drinking. It says they begin taking treasure and trying to hide it. And it says that they couldn't even, that there was so much they didn't even know what to do with it. They hid one, they took one trip of treasure and they hid it. And they were like, well, there's more. Let's take another one. I picture this just kind of fun. They're eating and drinking. Can you imagine this? Like a bunch of lepers, like they're outcasts, dude. They're not cool. You, I can see them like trying on the armor, right? Like having like a little, you know, I, I can almost see a joust. Like, ha you know, we're, we're live. You can see them dressing up in armor, having a little uh, Renaissance fair right there in a party, eating and drinking. Probably, there's so much, they're probably throwing food. They're probably like, ah, this is good. I don't like this. Throwing, I mean, can you, can you imagine the celebration, the joy, the party of knowing that at one moment that they, they couldn't save themselves and yet they walked upon an amazing thing that God had done for them. And they start to hoard it for themselves. They start to hide it. They start to take these things and keep them to themselves. In verse 9 it says, I want you to hear this because if I could summarize and paint a picture of what our mission as people who have been changed by the good news of Jesus, this is it. You and I, who at one point were locked up in the city of the enemy, you and I, if we call ourselves to be in Christ, you and I who were hiding in the city knowing that the enemy was going to destroy us any minute, have now realized that God has done something. God has defeated the enemy and it changes everything. If I could describe and summarize our mission now, this is how I would summarize it. Verse 9, it's one of the lepers said to one another, we are not doing right. For this day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment, punishment will surely overtake us. Now therefore, come, let us go and let us tell the entire king's household. If I could summarize what the good news of Jesus has done for you and me and paint a picture for now what it looks like that we walk in his footsteps, this would be it. God has done something for you and for me that has defeated the enemy. In fact, defeated the enemy in such a way that he is now running scared. The enemy having no power over you and me because Jesus was sent to destroy him and defeat his works finally and definitively. And now that you and I are being set free day by day by this good news of what Jesus has done to defeat the enemy, we are not doing right if we are keeping it a secret. For today, today, 
the day that we know that God has saved us is a day of good news, is it not? Good news. And we are not doing right if we keep it a secret. And I don't know if this applies fully, but I I think there's a kernel of truth here for you and for me. Punishment, judgment will surely overtake us if we are hoarding the treasure of God rather than sharing it. Punishment will surely overtake us if we are keeping this good news a secret. I want to warn you. Some people didn't believe it. It says, verse 10, so they came and they called to the gatekeepers of the city and they told to them, hey, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and he said to his servants, I'll tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp and to hide themselves in the open country thinking when they come out of the city, we'll take them alive and then get into the city. The king heard this good news and he said, it's got to be too good to be true. Surely that can't be the case. Surely the Syrians are just waiting and they're tricking us. So when we go outside of the gates, they're going to ambush us, kill us, and then take our city when we walk out of it. And for some of you right now, when I tell you that God wants to give you new life through what Jesus has accomplished to you, you're thinking the same thing. What's the catch? You're telling me God wants to give me new life? God wants to wipe my slate clean and take all that is bad in my past, put it away and give me a new life marked by freedom and joy and celebration? Whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds like a trick. I don't know if you get these. I get a lot of emails um, from, from I'm, I'm a big deal. I don't know if you know this, I'm really a big deal. So I get a lot of emails from people who have like uh, um, oil holdings in Africa and in the, the Middle East, um, a lot of them. And a lot of rich people all over the country or all over the world, they really want me to help them move money because I'm a big deal. And they want me to, if I would just like send them my bank account information, um, they will transfer a lot of their oil wealth into my account and help them transfer it. I don't know if that happens to you. It happens to me all the time. If it doesn't, I'm going to beat you to the punch. That offer is too good to be true. And I sense that as I tell you and and as you and I get the opportunity to share this good news of Jesus with the people around us, I know for a fact I've seen it on people's faces. There's a sense in which it seems like it's too good to be true. And I can even hear right now in your own resistance, you're thinking, well, you don't know me, Jonathan. You don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know what I have been through. There's no way I can be healed from that. There's no way I can be forgiven for that. There's no way that he could fix what I've done with my life. And you sound just like the king. God had come and changed everything. God had done something that had set the entire city free. But if you read through the rest of the story, not everyone runs out to receive the victory. Some of those people stay. And because they don't believe the good news that God has defeated the enemy, they die. One of them even trampled in the city. So if you found yourself in this place, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're like, this whole Jesus thing is crazy. I have incredibly good news for you. But it begins with a harsh reality. 
if you wouldn't say that God has saved you and delivered you from your past and given you a new future, then I want to warn you right now, you're like the people stuck inside of Samaria. You're like the people stuck inside of this city. And I know right where you're sitting, you're thinking, it can't get any worse. And I know just like the people in the city, you found yourself in the place where you're like, there's no way that God is real. Much less is it possible that God could save me, that God could give me joy and peace in this life. And I know what you're thinking. There's no way that what you're saying is true. I want to tell you, you're you're in a place just like the people inside the city of Samaria. And that place is bleak and dark, and the future is hopeless. Because you will either starve where you are, or the enemy will strangle you where you are, or the enemy will kill you when you try to fix it. And yet, and yet, because God does this, I don't know why, God has this thing where he likes to save people using miraculous and unlikely means. He does it all the time. He does it all the time. He didn't use a king to save us. He sent this holy child that didn't even have a home, a hospital, a hotel room to be born in. He was born in a barn. And our God, for some reason, wants to be known among the nations, not for his power and his violence, but he wants to be known among the nations for his mercy. And so he saves people with miraculous means, so much so that he will even use people who are outcast, rejects like lepers to be the deliverers of good news. And if you find yourself stuck in that city, I want to tell you, as hard as it is to believe, if you will simply open your eyes, if you will simply look at the world a bit differently and see the reality that God has done something and changed everything, even this moment, for you to open your eyes to the possibility that God has defeated the enemy and you are no longer under his control. The possibility that for you to begin to just consider it and believe it is the opportunity and the power to be transformed, forgiven, redeemed in a moment, in an instant. And to simply believe it, to simply consider it, is to be saved from it just like these people who were locked in this city, who thought they were without hope. But for those of you, maybe you already are a Christian, maybe you would call yourself a follower of Jesus. Maybe if you heard this good news, maybe this good news has already inspired you. Maybe this good news you've heard and, and it changed your life and, it begin, and it's begun to renew you each and every day. If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, there's something here for you too. You're not special. You're not special. Walt Disney's wrong. You're, you're not a princess. Okay? You're not a snowflake. But, but, even if you're not special, even if you're a reject, God has entrusted to you and to me this amazing message that He has done something that has changed everything. And our only redeeming quality, just like these lepers, really is to look and see that we can't save ourselves. And you can test, I, I, test this theory. Try to fix what's wrong in your life. Pick the thing that bugs you the most in your life. Try to fix it. Try to take control over it. And see if you will, if you don't create a bigger mess than the one you have now. Try to fix it. Try to make it like you want it. Get back to me. Tell me how that works out for you. 
But I found that even in my best attempts, even when I, I'm the most disciplined at trying to run my own life and fix what's wrong, and when I try to clean up the messes that I've made, I tend to make a bigger mess. And while that might feel discouraging, can I invite you into seeing this? This is really good news. Because the redeeming quality for these outcasts was that they finally admitted to one another that they can't save themselves. They're rejected from their own people, and their only hope is to just lay themselves out there. And you know what God did? You know what God did for those people who were without hope and gave up on trying to save themselves? He saved them before they had even woken up. He defeated the army before they had even woken up. He destroyed the enemy before they even knew it. While they were sleeping, God had already made a plan. God had already enacted His purpose to save them and deliver them. And then on top of that, He made them messengers of good news for them to go back and to tell. You're not special, but Jesus is. And He's done something for you and for me that has changed everything and has now given us a new life. I want to close with a thought that comes from the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 5. Um, if you want to, you can join me there. Otherwise, I'll just read it to you. So in Mark chapter 5, this is the gospel of Jesus telling the good news of who Jesus is. It says that Jesus came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had st stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. For he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Did you catch that? People around him had completely given up on this man. This man was in such bad trouble that all the people around him had cast him out. He was living in the graveyard, homeless, and the people had given up on them. Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him, so they gave up on him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting themselves with stones. Ever been there? Know what that looks like? Verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down in front of him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. I love that part. I love where the, the demons recognize who Jesus is and they're like, please don't torture us as if they know like there's a beating coming. They just don't know when. They're like, oh, we didn't know it was today. We thought we, thought we had more time. Don't, don't beat us, Jesus. And Jesus responds, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked the spirit, what is your name? And the man or the spirit, it says, he replied, my name is Legion for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter into them. And so Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out of the man and they entered the pigs. And the entire herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned themselves in the ocean. The herdsmen, the owners or the shepherds of the pigs, they fled and then they told it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what it, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind. And they were now afraid. And those who had seen it described to them 
what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons, the man who had been given a new life, the man whom Jesus had defeated his enemies, had had defeated his captors, this man who had been set free by Jesus, had been given a brand new life by Jesus, he says to Jesus, it says that he begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus did something strange, and he did not permit him, but instead he said to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And so he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. If you find yourself in chains, if you would look at your life and the many things that hold you down and you would say to yourself, there is a legion of things against you, I have good news. Jesus has power over all things. And to trust in him and his power over all things is to receive the victory that he has over the things that now hold you captive. And he can set you free in a way that you never can. But for those of you who know this, I have words of Jesus for you. Go home. Go to your friends. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And tell them how he has had mercy on you. That, over and over and over again in God's word, is our mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, that you are good and faithful. Uh, We thank you that you're merciful. Um, God, even sometimes that seems hard to believe. Uh, If there's any in this room that that just seems too good to be true, thank you. Thank you for bringing them here. Thank you that they're here. Um, Thank you that they're hearing this good news of your victory over all things. Uh, And for those that maybe it seems too good to be true, this Jesus offer just seems, it just seems silly that God would, you would want to give us this great gift and require nothing of us but to simply receive it. God, we confess there's times that just seems silly and it seems too good to be true. And and if that's, if that's our heart right now, would you, would you begin to encourage us? Would you begin to fill us with hope that you alone have the power to save? And the reason that it seems too good to be true is that you simply are that merciful, you are that faithful, and you are that gracious. And you, for some mysterious reason, want to display yourselves to the wor- yourself to the world, not as, as a conqueror and just and and wrathful and violent God, but you simply want to show yourself to the nations as a redeemer, as a rescuer, as the one who takes the alien and adopts them in his family. So if we find that hard to believe, if there's any in this room right now, they're like, man, why should I even believe in the Lord anymore? God, would you right now show yourself to them? Would you give them the courage to begin to open up their minds and consider the possibility that you have already accomplished for them and on their behalf what they could never do for themselves? You have already secured the peace for them that they could never achieve on their own. God, for those of us that have doubts, you have already achieved and purchased hope for eternity for us that we could never earn for ourselves. But God, for the rest of us that maybe we know this good news, we know you've delivered us. We know how merciful you are. God, we confess to you. We have not done right by keeping it a secret. So even right now, as we begin to, to scatter from this place, as we begin to, to prepare for being dismissed from this place, 
God, you're going to send us to places, the places where we work, and we know you have not put us there on accident. In the same way that you did not put those lepers outside that city on accident, instead you put those lepers right there so that they ultimately would be the herald of good news of your salvation. Would you show us right now that you have not put us where we are by accident? The places where we work, the family that we were born into, the, ser- the, the sphere of influence, the, the network of friends that we have. God, we, all of those things, are, none of them are coincidence, none of them are accident, but instead you've put us there so that we would be encouragers. We would be just like these lepers who've given up on trying to save ourselves and instead have committed ourselves to living, walking in your footsteps and sharing the good news of your victory to each and every person we meet. Help us to earn the right and the people around us to share it, to love them, to open up the doors and opportunities for them to begin to open their ears and hear this good news that you have already defeated the enemy. God, forgive us for the places we've been ashamed or we've been scared. Instead, now, when we go boldly to the people that we know and tell them all that the Lord has done for us, we'll do it in the power of Jesus and his name. Amen.